Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, I'm Atalia Omer. I'm a professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. And I'm one of the guest editors of the most recent issue of Peace Policy, focused on the particular role of women in global peacebuilding efforts. I'm joined here by my co-editor, Ruth Carmi, who is a current PhD student in Peace Studies and Sociology. Ruth, go ahead and tell us something about your dissertation, because it is relevant for today's discussion. Thank you. I utilize an intersectional lens to examine the connections between gender, race, class, nationality, religion, and the occupation of the Palestinian people and land. I focus on Israeli women of color, examining their social locations, and especially how those are sustained by Israeli institutions and system of stratification. Currently, I'm doing that by qualitatively analyzing Israeli Supreme Court cases that focus on Israeli women of color and question of motherhood. Great, thank you, Ruth. So let me say a few words about the framing of the current issue of peace policy. From UN Resolution 1325, which was ratified in 2000, and which acknowledged the impact of armed conflict on women and girls, and the importance of women's full participation in peace building, to international efforts to mainstream consideration of women and gender in development policy praxis. It is clear there is nothing new about the consideration of women's role in peace building and peace research. However, 22 years after the UN resolution, critical intervention in the deployment of women's rights in peace policy and practice is needed. This podcast offers a glimpse into the new issue of peace policy, which offers three such important interventions that illuminate tensions between women's constructive roles in peace building and redressing gender, epistemic, structural, political, and historical forms of injustice. The authors examine what the praxis of women and peace building may obscure, namely that peace has to be feminist, which means dismantling all relations of dominations as per Chiapas' disruption of patriarchal norms that the Palestinian feminist critique of peace opens up decolonial horizons for alternative political imaginations. And that finally neglecting to intersect religion as integral to women and peace building practices constrains the analytic and policy scopes of our thinking. So we now have the great honor of convening these amazing authors of the three pieces that make up the issue of peace policy. First, Linda Kikiewicz is a popular educator of Maya roots who saves seeds, loves books, and makes art. She has a doctorate in geography and organizes in a Chumash lens toward a world where many worlds fit. Welcome, Kiki. Thank you for having me, Atalia and Ruthie. So next, we have Sarah Yichmud who is Assistant Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at the College of the Holocaust in Worcester, Massachusetts. Sarah is a social cultural anthropologist who works at the intersection of anthropology and feminist studies. She is also a member of the Palestinian Feminist Collective, 
a US-based body of Palestinian and Arab women and feminists committed to Palestinian social and political liberation by way of confronting systemic gendered and colonial violence, oppression, and dispossession. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Atalia, and for organizing this wonderful conversation. I'm speaking from the unceded and occupied territory of the Nipmuc Nation. It's a privilege to be in this conversation with you all today. Thank you. And finally, we have Kathleen Marshall. Kathleen is a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, where she leads the center's work on religion and global development. And she's a professor of the practice of development, conflict, and religion in the Walsh School of Foreign Affairs. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Atalia. Happy to be here. Okay, well, thanks to you all for being here today. Let us begin. First, for those listening who have not yet read your essays, each of you looked at this question of women and peace building and gender from a different angle. I wonder if each of you might say some brief words about the focus of your essays. So let me start with you, Catherine. I looked and continue to look at these issues really from two perspectives. One of them is how do the women involved in the multitude of processes involved understand what work for peace means with clearly the breadth and the depth of understanding and the range of issues that are involved. It's far more than conflict resolution or peacekeeping. So I think that's a first area. And then the second is the somewhat ironic and sad fact that there is often quite a wall of separation between feminist scholars and practitioners, women, but also men, and those who approach this with an inspiration coming from religious beliefs or religious membership. And that wall, I think, prevents us from seeing even more of the work that women do, which is so often invisible to the normal eyes. And it highlights the importance of, of breaking down these walls and helping people to see the work that's being done within a common framework. Wonderful. Thank you, Catherine. Sarah, do you want to share with us? Yes, thank you. So my piece is really a humble offering to the question that was posed to me, which was, why does peace need to be feminist in relation to Palestine? Or how can we understand a feminist approach to peace in Palestine? So I begin by centering the language and the vocabulary of a young girl in occupied East Jerusalem, Lama, who when passing the gates of Babylamud, one of the entrances of the old city, comments on what she calls the, quote, killing boxes stationed to surveil and police Palestinian movement and life in the city. And in essence, right, she's renaming the architecture of colonial occupation. She's transforming the so-called watchtowers and checkpoints into what she calls killing boxes. And so I build on this vocabulary, right, as a sort of emergent feminist vocabulary, a gesture of anti-colonial refusal, which is, right, thinking through this idea of peace in relation to this refusal to be imprisoned by the colonizer's language, which is also the refusal to be relegated to spaces of, of death and disappearance as indigenous peoples, and the sort of assertion of a counter-hegemonic 
language and vocabulary, a Palestinian feminist vocabulary in relation to this broader question of peace. So the piece goes on to, number one, contextualize the violence of liberal paradigms of peace, which continue to be the dominant or hegemonic prisms through which both the Israeli state and the international community attempt to construct the Palestinian-Israeli context as a mode of sort of further enabling the violent order of settler colonialism and its entanglement with the coloniality of power more broadly. And number two, to begin to think about what it means to imagine peace from a decolonial perspective and specifically from a Palestinian feminist perspective and how that relates to kind of broader kind of political horizons. Wonderful. And, we, and it's a perfect transition to Kiki's contribution as well. What I looked at was the question of feminist justice and the conventional approaches to it and more indigenous decolonial perspectives and approaches to it from the case study of the Zapatista women who are indigenous Mayan women, part of a broader struggle anti-colonial struggle in southern Mexico, in the state of Chiapas. And what I looked at was what is a conventional approach to justice in, an, in the face of violence, of patriarchy's violence, of colonialism's violence, and looked at the shared logic between colonialism, between patriarchy, between capitalism, between racialization, that way we can do that work of trying to figure out how our struggles are intersecting, not so much that they are intersecting, but how, how does that happen and why? And so what I look at is the logic of a dominant world of the world imposed on the globe since 1492 forward, which is a logic that ranks difference in a scale of superior and inferior in order to dominate. So under patriarchy, for example, that ranking is the male is superior and the non-male is inferior. With colonialism, it has been the European is superior and the non-European is inferior. And so what my piece looks at is the ways that we can attack that logic of domination and create worlds where we have other logics of how we relate to each other, where rather than being above versus below, we are side by side, walking side by side, and in terms of the question of gender, in Mesoamerican philosophical legacies that the Zapatistas draw from, the movement toward a feminist justice is very much accompanied by justice for everyone and understanding that patriarchy does not have a gender, the way that Bell Hooks you know, always talked to us about, that what is the issue is the logic of domination it, and what patriarchy does is it orders our categories of genders into these rankings so then the question is for justice how can we get out of that logic and create another logic where as the zapatista women say we are equal because we are different not because we're trying to reach a specific standard of what it means to be a valuable human being on the planet Wonderful, thank you. And I would like to invite maybe uh, Sarah, if you want to just reflect together with Kiki, Kiki's intervention specifically on the question of equality within difference and the kind of challenge to a liberal grammar, which also features into your own analysis or critique of the liberal peace paradigm. So whatever kind of reaction, reflection you want to offer is very welcome here. Thank you so much. I mean, I think, first of all, I, I really appreciate Kiki's analysis here and right, really taking us into 
the kind of center of kind of Western hegemony and thinking beyond these dualities that it produces, right? These binaries that it produces. And also thinking with the idea of alternative kind of more plural existences and how we can consider our kind of interrelational subjectivities, right? As a central aspect of what it means to think beyond these hegemonic paradigms. And I think the project of sort of Palestinian life and feminism is very much right thinking with these insights which Kiki is bringing to the forefront in terms of kind of indigenous kind of decolonial approaches right and part of this goes back to this age that you're naming Kiki of 1492 right when we think about the kind of coloniality of power the birth of kind of these enlightenment paradigms that sort of work to you know create the very paradigms that we're exploring today, right, of kind of peace and justice and so forth. And I think part of the invitation of Palestine, right, is to consider Palestine as a sort of microcosm of all of the internal and external victims of the European nation state and its racial project, and more broadly of the enlightenment and the very category of the human, right? So how can we kind of understand that Palestine is not a problem space, but it is an invitation from which we are invited to imagine new modes of asserting our humanity, of creating belonging in the world, right? So I see a lot of resonance there. And I think I can speak more broadly to some of these questions that Atalia is posing as well, right? I think part of the argument that I make in the piece here, the brief piece, is that that this is very much obviously embedded in the conversations that have been happening for years among Palestinians who are saying, you know, first, not only has the so-called peace process failed us in a variety of ways, but also that it has been used and abused as a cover for Israel to continue its processes of violent colonization of our land and the evisceration of our people. And part of that critique is that the so-called Middle East peace process, right, transformed an anti-colonial movement for liberation into a state building project that ultimately served to pacify and control Palestinians rather than edify the path towards freedom and sovereignty. And so the framework of peace itself became a tool of further entrenching Israeli settler colonial violence and power, enabling the consolidation of a, what I call in the peace, a predominantly male Palestinian ruling class committed to maintaining the status quo, right? But we are in a moment as a people of a return to an anti-colonial discourse. And I'm speaking here of the unity intifada and lifting that up, which clearly articulated last spring that we are one people struggling against this ongoing structure of settler colonial power that has relegated us to these fragmented carceral spaces across occupied territory and beyond. And I think this moment invites us as scholars, as practitioners, to really take this discourse of anti-colonialism and decolonization seriously, right? So part of the move in this essay is to think with this renewed discourse of Palestinian liberation as anti-colonial liberation alongside the concept of peace. And that is to say, you know, we cannot understand peace apart from our liberation as a people from the ongoing project of Israeli settler colonialism. We cannot understand peace apart from an end to the lethal and ontologically disruptive gendered racial colonial power of the Zionist state. And I think you know, there's something really troubling about the continued reliance on this very tired framework of peace to the extent that Palestinians are constantly constructed through this paradigm as sort of 
unwilling participants, right? As unwilling to come to the table, as disrupting the peace process, which is of course embedded in these broader kind of Orientalist logics of being uncivilized, of being savage, of being the enduring colonial other, when really the framework fails to recognize the root of the problem, which is not a conflict between two equal parties, but is an inherently unequal relation of power between colonizer and colonized, right? So there's something deeply troubling that that we are still kind of being blamed for our own suffering. And that is precisely what colonialism does to the colonized, right? So we cannot think about justice for Palestinians apart from liberation from the structure of settler colonial violence and power. And maybe I'll stop there to give someone else a chance to speak and, and return to some of these issues. Thank you. Um, so many critical issues. I'll just reflect back on a couple. One with respect to really centering an analysis of coloniality and the ongoing structures and logic of settler colonialism as it plays out in the context of Palestine, but also, like you said, Palestine is a way of also thinking broadly beyond Palestine um, about the kind of issues that also Kiki articulates and some of the broader framing of the conversation today. Your analysis about the peace process, the so-called peace process being a mechanism, an instrument to entrench violence and deepen it. This is so, so critical. And then bringing in the gender lens by looking at how an anti-colonial struggle turned into a male-dominated state-building project. And in addition to this, the very important recent development of the Unity Intifada that focuses on ways and mechanisms and moments of illuminations of defragmentation, which is a kind of a, the depth of a challenge to the colonial logic of fragmentation of Palestinians. Really critical points. I wonder, Ruth, if you want to reflect on, just to share with us your reflection very briefly. Yes, thank you. I think both Sarah and Kiki kind of highlighted very important things for me that connects to the sort of intersectional lens I try to push forward when thinking about Israel and how these fragmentation or this colonial binary thinking you both highlighted works to kind of conceal possible solidarities and how this colonial thinking works to oppress not only Palestinian but also to affect the inner Jewish stratification of Israeli society and prevent possible solidarities between Palestinians and Jewish groups that could work together to kind of break down those oppressive forces of patriarchy, of colonialism, of the occupation. So I think for me, this is one of the strongest points of how fragmentation conceals us for seeing how gender, race, colonialism kind of all stem from the same roots and all work together to perpetuate the violence in the area. Great. Thank you. Catherine, I would like to invite you to, to see if you have any reflections on this particular turn in the conversation, perhaps specifically drawing on your experience and what you've reflected on in, in your piece with respect to the kind of um, critiques of the liberal peace framework and also bringing in the gender perspective uh, into the conversation. Well, these reflections are, of course, fascinating and central. My perspectives really come from a different end. I think I might even start with some of the reflections that come with the current war in Ukraine and the awareness that it has highlighted of the differences in the way people look 
at conflict in different parts of the world, the tragic differences that come from the, that we're seeing in the sharp attention and sympathy that people feel for the plight, the horrible situation of what's happening in Ukraine, but how little focus there is on what's happening in Tigray, what's happening with the Rohingya and what's happening in Myanmar, Burma, in DRC, in the Central African Republic, which every day are facing horrors. So I think what this comes back to is what do we mean by peace, which is where I started and the degree to which it is about something very fundamental, which is security, the desire of people to be safe and secure. But then beyond that, the realities of inequality and the divergence that we're seeing in many parts of the world in people's security, but also their possibilities to flourish and to develop. So I think what I and what many women who are looking at these issues from different parts of the world are looking at is a much broader understanding of peace. And whether that fits within your definition, I'm not sure. I don't think, I don't see it in the same language and the same terms that you're describing here. But in a visceral sense, I think we're talking about the same thing and about issues of justice and of what it takes to reverse some of the injustice that we're facing. I think that their danger of essentializing women is a very real one, but we are looking at what I think is a very real issue, which is some very distinctive and important insights that women bring to the issues. Great. I wonder, Kiki, if you want to jump in on that conversation too. I really enjoy the, I'm very grateful also that Catherine brought up the question of safety, of how do we feel safe? Because so much of our movement work is resisting violence, is resisting oppression. And sadly, a lot of the time, we replicate other violences onto each other as we're doing organizing. And, you know, and Sara has mentioned how, like in the case of Palestine, which is not at all unique, it's something that we see in so many of our movements worldwide, that in trying to be free, we then replicate, for example, uh, patriarchal relations amongst each other, or classist relations or racialized relations and on and on. And I think that that's why it's so important to talk about domination rather than only identities of who is dominated and who is dominating, because those identities can shift according to context. And I think Israel-Palestine is emblematic of this problem. The Zionist project to create the state of Israel as a majority Jewish state, sadly, was a project that looked toward, looked up above to the great powers, to the oppressors to help Jews survive and feel safe in the world. And the price for that was to go above, which means that you need to crush someone below you. So the price of that ticket of safety and security was to then create the Palestinian refugee issue, incarceration, violence, basically the death and destruction of Palestine. And that is sadly what so many of us are offered. It's the only option that we have when we're crushed is to go above 
and make ourselves useful to empire by showing them that we can then crush others on its behalf, which is exactly how the Zionist project was created. Barack Obama, the first black president of the United States. Similarly, this was his, his logic in getting elected is that he's not black like those other people are black. So he was the good black person versus the bad black person. In the immigrant rights struggle in the United States, we get the good immigrant that speaks the English and, and was young and, and they didn't cross the border willingly. They were just kids, they're not criminals like their parents. Their parents don't speak English, their parents are the criminals. You know, this is the logic that we are forced into in order to resist. And so what a decolonial rebellion and resistance movement uh, requires is that we do not replicate that, that we do not become the monsters that we are trying to fight, that instead we create another world with other logics and other ways of relating that again, don't just focus on categories because a Jew in Nazi Germany, that structural position was of below but Jews in Palestine, that structural position is above. And so again, context is really important so that we don't just look at identities. And with the question of patriarchy, a lot of the time we look at the question of women versus men in this question of patriarchy, in this question of decolonization, those logics, I think, are really important to look at in addition to the identities that are being classified in this specific moment in this relation of domination, of violence, of dispossession, of extermination, of extinction, on and on. Thank you, Kiki. This, this is such a profound reflection and intervention in our conversation. I want to lift a couple points just to reiterate the important points that you are making. One is about really getting a grasp of the logic of domination and thinking of ways to unsettle the above-below logic, which is such an important challenge. Another point that really profoundly resonates with me and with my own thinking is thinking about identity not as an essence, but contextually shifting the example that you gave of a Jewish person in Nazi Germany and a Jewish person in the context of Israel. It's very different. We need to understand it as a subject position. So this is very important. I wanted to turn to you, Catherine, because we have um, some languages already kind of circulating in our conversation here with respect to visibility and invisibility, security and insecurity, and of course, kind of patriarchal norms that are very much a part of the conversation here. And I know that in your work, especially focusing on um, women and peace building, but also in the context of thinking about women and development praxis, you often reflected on how the ironic fact that women's invisibility or marginality is actually quite agentic in the sense of that it provides them with capacity to be peace-building agents in certain contexts. So I wonder if you can just reflect on this issue of visibility and visibility and the ways in which you, in your work, as is reflected in the brief essay as well, you've tried to intersect the various conversations of, with respect to women in development, gender in development, religion in development, religion and peace building. You've, for many years, you've tried to intersect those conversations. So I want to invite you to speak about that and perhaps connect it to some of the other issues that are on the table. I think it's worth remembering that it's within my professional lifetime that issues of serious research and look at the roles that women and girls play in 
social change in different forms of modernity have really come into focus. That when I started my career, there were almost no women in leadership positions in the development world. And there was almost a giggling when someone mentioned uh, that one should look at gender issues and women. And of course, you can say easily, we've come a very long way in that sense, that there's now a much different conversation that we're hearing from these younger scholars today, which I think is, is of course, a profound set of progress. On the question of invisibility with Susan Hayward, we did some research with the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Berkeley Center on the roles that women were playing in peace processes, peace efforts across the world. And as we explored, we found some women who were arguing that, first of all, that they were invisible, that people simply did not see the work they did, did not respect it. But there were also some who argued that this was an advantage for two reasons. One was that it meant that they could go places physically, but also intellectually and emotionally, that people who had formal positions, who were normally the sort of peace brokers, could not go to. So that that's a classic role in affairs is when it is possible to, to use invisibility strategically. But then there was also the fact that, that they were simply not seen and therefore not honored and their ideas were not respected. And we found that some people who looked at these studies thought that invisibility was an attractive fact. In fact, that it should be the theme, that it was the strength of women, which of course is exactly the opposite of what we were arguing and what we were seeing. So I think that this question of, of shining light, of knowledge, of research and so forth, that really focuses in a much more explicit way on the work of women is important. But the other aspect of it was that we often found that women would say, I'm not really working on peace. I'm working on, on microfinance. I'm working on education. I'm working on public health. Because they did not define that as part of peace as they understood it. And therefore, it was important to broaden the understanding of peace beyond conflict, beyond war. Now, that's almost a truism, a platitude, but I think it has some very important and deep roots that help us to understand what we're talking about when we say the platitudes of peace be upon you and all of the other ancient and modern dreams of, of security and peace. And the final comment I would make is, something that does come out of this discussion is the importance of context and how different each context is. And if you don't get into the weeds, <laughs> the deep roots of any given situation, you really cannot understand. And yet, often that can take you away from some of the fundamental themes that in this process, in this project, you're looking to. Great. Thank you, Kathleen. I wonder if Kiki or Sarah want to respond, reflect together with Kathleen's point. Thank you, Catherine, for bringing up the sort of the ways in which the contributions of women to peace building is critical. And I want to think further with you on that question, right? And I want to uplift that assertion that we have to think with the contributions of women to peace building, but we also have to go further, right? When we think about violence, the violence of war, the violence of colonialism, the violence of 
militarism, of these various logics and frameworks that Kiki and, and other folks uh, are kind of pointing to, right, as being confining, right? Feminist scholars have long argued, right, that not only is it that women and children who often bear the brunt of some of the most egregious forms of violence, as well as the humanitarian crises that come in their wake, but that, right, occupation, war, militarism are extreme and violent forms of patriarchy, right? And in the same breath, feminist scholars have also drawn our attention to the fact that peace and peacemaking processes have have also been predominantly heteropatriarchal and masculine domains of power, right? Women are often marginalized or excluded completely from these processes, which, again, often naturalize, racialized, and gendered state violence and silence the more sort of insidious forms of patriarchal violence embedded in everyday life. And the response has been this idea of, right, gender mainstreaming into international and security arenas, the passing of UN Security Council Resolution 1325, right, recognizing women's contribution to peace building and conflict resolution, ensuring women's inclusion in post-conflict decision-making, channeling resources to protect women and children in conflict and post-conflict situations, which I think are all kind of critical. But at the same time, this approach falls short in that it doesn't get to the core of the causes of violence and war in the first place in many cases. So I think, yes, our approach to peace, right, has to be feminist. It has to include women's voices, but it also has to be anti-imperialist, right? Cynthia Enloe argued several decades ago that peace for women requires more than the absence of armed conflict, but that sustainable peace requires an absence of the very factors that lead to conflict. So we have to go beyond this sort of approach, right? Now for Palestinian women, that struggle against colonial power intersects with the struggle against patriarchy within our own society. So we can't think about Palestinian women's rights or justice for Palestinian women, or even their participation in peace-building processes outside of this broader power dynamic of Israeli settler colonialism and the ways in which it has empowered Palestinian patriarchy. And at the same time, to an extent, right, thinking with these ideas of kind of visibility and invisibility, to an extent, Palestinian women are trapped within some of the hegemonic frameworks and controlling images that you know, military imperialist and feminist imperialist stances have worked to reify of Arab and Muslim women more broadly, right? That we are sort of monolithically oppressed and in need of saving from the men in our community. And alongside that, right, in the specificities of the Palestinian case, that we are constructed by the colonial entity as being inherently dangerous because of our very ability to give life to the next generation of Palestinians as indigenous women. And these sort of hyper-visible tropes work to silence the very real issues that our communities are dealing with as Palestinian women, right? We're ontologically displaced because these images in part are so pervasive, Palestinian feminist thought is often completely overlooked. So part of what I'm gesturing towards in this piece is that we need to take the experiences and the language and the counter-hegemonic vocabularies that arise from the space of Palestinian women and girls' lives seriously. The elimination of indigenous narratives and embodied experiences is part of the broader project of eliminating indigenous presence on the land, right, which is central to the settler colonial project. So reclaiming our narratives and centering the experiences of indigenous women is central to this idea of 
intellectual sovereignty that Robert Warrior discusses and, you know, Rana Berkat takes up in her exploration of Palestinian intellectual sovereignty from the project of Zionist colonialism that has imprisoned the very terms from which we can imagine our freedom. So we need to take Palestinian women and girls naming of their own conditions and lived embodied experiences seriously as the starting point for redefining kind of what peace and justice mean. And what I offer here is obviously building on decades of Palestinian feminist interventions and is just a starting point for thinking about Palestinian feminist sort of epistemology for peace, because this is where I see so much hope amidst the despair. And this is where I see hope in terms of broadening the horizons beyond sort of these international policy measures that have been limited in their approach, right? We need to continue to center the brilliant and complex ways in which women and girls give voice to their own realities and life-making praxis as the sort of compass that directs our redefinition of political horizons more broadly. Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> so layered and really um, illuminating in so many ways. I mean, this notion of uh, Palestinian feminist epistemology of peace is such an important inter intervention. And it's so, like you said, Sarah, it reflects so much of the intellectual work that Palestinians have done for so many years. But it, it seems like it's coming to the foreground in terms of activist spaces as well, especially in reference to uh, what you mentioned earlier there unity intifada and so forth. Uh, Kiki, do you want to jump in? I love very much how, Sarah, you've insisted that we focus on the root of the issue, right? So it's not just a movement for women and peace, but it's, it's investigating how did we get to the situation of violence in the first place? And I think that that's a key intervention to make. And, and I think that that's the great value of having a decolonial or anti-colonial lens on all of our work in the context that we're living in now, which is a world that is still colonized, is a post-1492 world that has tried to extinguish other worlds and just impose its way on everybody. And when I think about women and justice and peace and the root, I think about how the world has gone wrong already with this question of, of human rights and of humans in peace, you know, and thinking about how with uh, the post-1492 world for centuries, that division between Europe and non-Europe existed in a very clean way until we get the anti-colonial resistance struggles, the decolonization of the 20th century, where that line isn't so clean anymore, that Europe versus non-Europe, we have the creation of the League of Nations and then the United Nations and everyone is supposed to now have equal human rights or universal human equality rather than just having rights if you're European. The problem that was not addressed in that move, however, was the very logic of the Western order that places a category in a distinctive, uh, in a negative relation to its opposite. So in order to have human rights, what needed to be thought of also was, well, what does it mean to be human and what is a non-human? And in that receptacle, we get the terrorist, the communist, the resistance fighter. Everybody is possibly in that non-human category, which then legitimizes further violence and dispossession because that distinction of human rights, human rights are supposed to be the space of peace. The non-human then is a space of war, which was exactly mapped onto the logic of colonialism, where Europe is a space of peace and non-Europe is a space of war. 
right? This is not just a categorization of difference. It's a ranking over who has the right to safety and who does not have the right to safety, who deserves to live and who does not deserve to live. So if we're talking about something like women and justice and, and rights and, and something so universal like that within the given framework of empire, we're going to fall into that same logic where we're going to then have this problem, who counts as a woman and who doesn't count as a woman? Because not only under Western philosophy is difference relegated in this negative way, it's also made binary. It's not fluid. It roles are imposed to organize society. This is what women are supposed to do. This is what non-women are supposed to do. This is what men, right? which is a, the ordering of racialization. This is a place for whites and this is a place for non-whites, right? That is what is at stake in really getting at the root of the issues that we're in. It, it also means understanding that we're already in a situation of violence. It already exists in order for the world, the dominant world to have spaces of peace, spaces of war need to be created side by side. So it's already a situation of violence. This is what the colonial world, this is the world of 1492. And so then how do we undo that so that we can create a world that is not based on the crushing of others? And if we just do this for women, for example, again, we're gonna fall into this problem of what does it mean to have, who qualifies as women, who qualifies to have those rights. And it's also not going to address the extermination, the extractivism of the rest of the planet of other beings, because it's not intersectional in the necessary way of, as an anti-capitalist politics as well. Capitalism is destroying the greatest woman, if we wanna continue with that allegory, Mother Earth. The planet is dying. And if our feminist politics aren't going to include that, then it's a bankrupt kind of politics. And the only way to really get to that is precisely like how Saya you're pointing out, we need to get to the root of these issues. And my insistence, we need to understand how we're intersecting, not just that we are intersecting. Thank you, Kiki. Another important challenge uh, to the conversation. I wonder, Catherine, if you want to um, respond, reflect on any of the reactions to your earlier comment. Well, I'm very struck by the multiple layers that are part of this broader conversation. I mean, clearly, when we're talking about Resolution 1325, and the United Nations, or when we're talking about gender mainstreaming in development work or in peace and conflict work, we're talking, first of all, at trying to come to these very broad global generalizations. When you come down to a situation like what's happening in Israel-Palestine, you come to a very different set of, of layers of the onion, so to speak, and you would have a very different one if you're talking about Kenya or if you move to the Philippines or to Bangladesh, where I was a couple of weeks ago. The question is, how do you take this context into account in meaningful ways where you also preserve these very broad questions and trends that we're looking at? So in terms of thinking about women's roles, which is, I think, where we started this conversation, that we have, in a very broad sense, had a very male-dominated approach and understanding of what peace was about, of you know, peace tables and 
peace negotiations and agreements and conflict and UN forces trying to enforce what's happening in CAR or what's happening in Darfur. And then you have this much more important conversation that I think all of us are grappling with from our different perspectives of looking at the elephant of uh, what are the root causes and how do you how do you get at these root causes, which start in very, very interpersonal relationships, but also societal and all of the roles of history. And I certainly do think that taking this lens of however general it is, of looking at how have women in different parts of the world at different times in history looked at the challenge of ending conflict or addressing conflict and peace and looking at some of the distinctive assets and looking perhaps at some of the disadvantages, looking at how they fit within each context, but also more broadly, is what what it is I think that we're trying to do. And it takes you sometimes to very specific questions of law and of the balance between culture and religion and so forth. So those are the questions that we're grappling with in different ways in the work that we're doing. And just to clarify, when you talk about we, you're talking about, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the Berkeley Center, which is where oh, I'm, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm also talking about the World Faiths Development Dialogue, which is the NGO that was born in, ironically, in the World Bank. But I'm also talking about what we sometimes try to describe as a movement, as sort of the emerging trends in the ways that there are about maybe 35 different networks that are looking at the roles of religion in global affairs, global issues, and trying to see across them what are the patterns. That's in some sense what I'm talking about with WE, where one of the examples is the G20 Interfaith Forum, which is trying to work through the G20 process, bringing the best of the religious insights and voices into the G20 process, as well, of course, as the United Nations system. And to what degree, when you say bringing in the religious voices, to what degree those religious voices are themselves marginal? If you're not at the table, you end up on the menu. And 1325 starts with who's at the table. In other words, whose voice is heard, whose voice counts. So that's part of it. But the question of religion, if you look at the Pew number that, what, 84% of the world's population has some religious affiliation, you're obviously talking about a vast majority of people in the world. So it has very little real meaning as a category. So I think that what we're talking about is looking at the substantive voices that are coming into the discussion. So this final question is, again, also a way of getting back very concretely to your contributions, to your essays. So although you are each exploring in your essays different concepts, they all circle around this concept of women, gender, and peace building. And it's especially in the cases of uh, Sarah and Kiki, there is, as we've heard now in the past hour, almost an hour of conversation, there is a concentrated effort in reimagining of what peace means through decolonial prisms, decolonial, anti-colonial, indigenous prisms. I wonder if you might reflect particularly on the 
policy implications of expanding our concepts of peace building in such a way through a decolonial prism, because as you know, this is uh, the, the three essays are in um, venue called peace policy. So I know that Catherine have done a lot of work. She's kind of uh, flourished in that policy space or in conversation with policy spaces. But Kiki and Sarah, you come from a different perspective. So I want to especially invite you to reflect on this. And perhaps let's start with you, Sarah, because one sentence from your piece really grabs me. And I want to quote it here for the listeners. So I quote, our continued investment in hegemonic vocabularies might impoverish our political imagination. And I know you've already spoken to this point, but I want to invite you to unpack it for us a little bit more and maybe try to make a link to policy questions. Thank you, Atalia. So I think decolonization, when we're thinking in these broad terms, as many indigenous scholars have pointed to, right? has sort of become idealized as a sort of metaphor that people allude to without understanding the very real and material implications of the idea, right? Oftentimes when you bring together scholars of anti-colonialism or or who are thinking in terms of decolonization with folks who work within kind of state building or kind of international peace building arenas, there's this conversation around the sort of impossibility, right? Or, Or there's an elephant in the room that's sort of what you're talking about is impossible and, you know, it kind of gets written off and dismissed almost as a sort of impossible reality, right? And I think part of this, thinking with this through a feminist lens, is also considering the very real differences among strains of feminism, right? There's a feminism that says we want a bigger slice of the pie and there's a a different kind of feminism, which is the project that I'm more aligned with, which is we want a completely different pie, right? So when we're talking about peace in relation to decolonization, we need to understand that decolonization in the Palestinian context, right, is about dismantling the settler colonizer systems and structures of oppression. And in the Palestinian case, this is a broad project that also means dismantling any system that works to deny the Palestinian people access to land, to space, to sovereignty, a project that requires both immediate and material responses. As Palestinians, this can mean a number of things, right? While a project of decolonization necessarily moves beyond the limitations of law as being embedded in this very colonial order of things that that Kiki has brought our attention to today, which has enabled the colonial project, right? We must think about the power of law in terms of its material implications to deter ongoing colonial violence and harm against the Palestinian people wherever they are situated, right? So in terms of policy, we need to work toward the implementation of international law with regards to ending Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Jerusalem, the continued expansion of the settlement of occupied territory, ending the siege in Gaza, right? The apartheid policies that continue to incarcerate and separate and criminalize Palestinians into these spaces of death and disappearance. We need to talk about actualizing the Palestinian right of return, not as this allegorical or symbolic idea that is an impossibility, but as a material process that names a stake in an anticipated future of a return to a liberated homeland, right? If we're talking about the decolonization of Palestine from the space of the United States. As feminists, we also have to talk about ending U.S. military aid to Israel. We have to talk about 
right, dismantling the structures that allow, right, the Zionist enterprise to continue growing in strength and power. We have to talk about policy approaches to dismantling the flows of capital that enable the funding of settlement activities in illegally occupied territory by U.S.-based Zionist organizations. We have to talk about decriminalizing Palestinian speech in the U.S. academy and supporting the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. For us as a people, decolonization means also attending to our own intergenerational healing, right? Healing from the deep and intergenerational effects of colonial violence and trauma. It means the opportunity to build our lives and our communities and our futures beyond the violence of settler colonialism. And I think, you know, these are just obviously very few starting points that I'm offering, but all of these very material aspects of decolonization are obviously linked to global struggles against racism, against war, against militarism and empire, and for indigenous life, for freedom from the oppressive frameworks that violate us all and deter our vision for a more expansive and interconnected vision of humanity. And I want to invite Ruth to jump in and offer her reflection, reaction, that also as a co-editor of this issue, I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for this important analysis. I'm especially resonating with kind of your pushing against from a feminist perspective, or a particular feminist perspective that connects to this notion of feminist Palestinian epistemology of peace and justice that is challenging, that is pushing against kind of the, um, the realist imposition that we can only think within that one framework. So I also, in terms of my own research, is something that really resonates with me. So thank you for this, Ruth. Yes, I think for me, this kind of all goes back to Audre Lorde. It's the master's tools that will never dismantle the master's house. And I think all three pieces tell us where to look for new tools. So where can we go to find the new tools to dismantle or to build? And I think these sort of invisible or counter-hegemonic narratives and practices are the places to go to, to look to build something new and kind of do that very important move between the context that is so important, but then being able to go to the global without sort of essentializing all oppression into one big understanding of oppression, understanding the, the complexities, but also framing it within colonialism, within this moment of rising nationalism and authoritarianization and militarism, and then going back to the context. And within that, I'd say, I don't want to leave the oppression or the, within my own country just to international law. I want to push the policy. I want to challenge the place where I come from to try and incorporate these understanding into their own, let's say, legal practices and understanding of the local law and not just turn to other sort of powers to do that change, but to push my own society into incorporating this very important feminist understanding to how our own oppression and our own history should make us reimagine the area and understand how we should be part of changing the history and the future of the people that live in it in order to understand peace more broadly. And I want to thank you all for this very important intervention because I feel they will push my own work further in thinking about feminist interventions and peace more broadly. Wonderful. Thank you, Ruth. Kathleen, do you want to offer your, your own reflection and perhaps 
thinking together with the challenges of that came from Sarah and Kiki with respect to kind of indigenous perspective and feminist perspective vis-a-vis questions of peace policy. A few quick observations, but noting also that the places that I come from as a practitioner of development with, I hate to say it, five decades behind me now, working in maybe 80, 90 different countries, that in a sense, the way that I frame issues is rather different. But I think that the basic fire and passion about injustice and inequality echoes very much. A couple of comments. The way that the issues are framed very often now is is in localization and a lot of difficulty in figuring out what localization means. But it essentially means, of course, coming away from the geopolitical sort of colonial legacy issues to some very clear practices of the ways in which institutions, including noble institutions like CRS and CARE and USAID, tend to have the balance of power very much at a central level, which often does not take into account local context in the ways that we would all like to see. So this localization, which is proving to be a much more thorny issue since the humanitarian summit in Istanbul, where you had the grand bargain, there really is a difference there. And clearly the women's voices however trite that may sound, but however important it is, are often not part of that conversation in the ways that they need to be. So I think that the basic issue is better lives for all, peace, and to overcome some of the historic habits and legacies and power dynamics that prevent us from unleashing the power of the people that we're looking at. Great. Thank you. Kiki, do you want to respond, react, and reflect on the question of policy? (laughs) Question of policy is very material. Like Sara, very, (laughs) Sara came ready with the the specific ways, some specific ways, because there are innumerable ways in which the logics that we've been talking about, the worldviews that we've been talking about actually manifest in everyday life. And I think that that's absolutely key. So when we talk about patriarchy, for example, what is the context that allows that to continue to give it force and racialization and colonialism and capitalism? And if we look at at the ways that they manifest, they manifest through fear of not being able to survive, of this question again of safety and security. And so then when we think about policy, how can we create a situation where we're not governed by fear, where we're not organizing our lives based off of fear? Because that is a very short step toward fascism to just allow folks to control us as long as we're kept safe for now. Anyway, when I think about policy, then I think about this big question. How do we create a world where many worlds fit? Because the world that we have right now Again, that world imposed since 1492 forward onto the planet is a world that is just a one world kind of world. It's the world that says this is the only way, this is the best way. It may not be the most ideal, but everything else is backward or everything else is is not good enough. This is the best world. This is the only world. 
that is already a violent imposition. And so beginning there as the problem, and so then as a policy solution is to get all of us to start thinking about how can we create a world where many worlds fit, where my world and your world can coexist, respecting each other in all of their difference. Is that possible? And if we look at the world of colonialism and the world of capital, we will see that that world needs the extermination of other worlds. And it's something that I ask folks never to take my word for, but instead to study yourself, study that yourself, think about how our everyday lives function, the electricity that I'm using right now, for example, the water that I'm drinking. I live in Southern California. I know that the water near Los Angeles water comes at the expense of the destruction of the countryside in other parts of California. Like those very, very basic material realities that we oftentimes don't think about because we're so focused on theory and debate. This is what movements are actually looking at. How can we live in a way that is in right relation to others. And that's not a question that we're encouraged to ask in the dominant world. Instead, the question that we are encouraged to ask is how can I myself get mine? How can I survive? And Catherine, that refrain, that very common refrain that you presented, very common refrain in Washington, if you're not on the, at the table, you're on the menu. That's exactly the problem that it's assumed that if you're not part of this world, then you're gonna be eaten. Right. That's already the issue is that it doesn't give us an option to create something else. It forces us in in order to survive. So, again, a world where many worlds fit and then the implications of that, it can't be something left up to the elites. It's going to be something that we're all going to have to figure out, because if we're really trying to be in right relation with each other, it means not having rankings over who can decide these questions and who can't, who is not able to decide these kinds of questions. This is um, a profoundly feminist place to end our conversation. How do we create a world where many worlds fit? Of course, feminists and indigenous and decolonial. I want to thank all of you for joining us today for this conversation. And uh, for those of you listening, we would invite you to check out the full peace policy issue at peacepolicy.nd.edu. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you, Kathleen. And thank you, Ruth. And thank you, Hannah, who is recording this podcast. So um, wonderful. <laughs> thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to The Crockcast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.